the healthcare workers have been working so hard, so hard, nonstop. We haven't had time to get our sourdough starter going or my SCOBY for my kombucha. Like, I haven't had time to clean my house where people are, you know, able to go through everything and pick up a hobby and really, in my opinion, enjoy quarantine time. We haven't. Welcome to Emergency Room, the COVID Diaries, a podcast that tells the story of how the COVID-19 pandemic swept across America from the perspective of the staff of a large American hospital. My name is Guy Madison, a registered nurse working in the emergency room and ICUs of Harborview Medical Center, a level one trauma hospital in Seattle, Washington. These COVID Diaries will introduce you to my colleagues and co-workers who showed up every day of the pandemic to treat and care for those taken by this deadly disease. And I'm Matthew Hall, a journalist with absolutely no medical background whatsoever. I'm the least interesting thing about this podcast, but I'm here to ask all the dumb questions. Why are breathing machines called ventilators and what do they actually do? (laughs) Well, that, Matthew, is not a dumb question at all. It's a very interesting question. So there was obviously a great deal of talk about ventilators throughout the entire pandemic, but particularly at the start when they were a crucial and critical piece of equipment used in the hospital to treat the sickest patients that had COVID. Of course, we use ventilators all the time in the hospital for people that are very, very ill. Essentially, When your body systems, your lungs and your heart are not able to keep up with your body and you need help to breathe, we're going to put you on a breathing machine. These breathing machines are called ventilators. What we do is we put a tube down your throat. More technically, we put it down your trachea into your lungs and we connect that to a pump machine and it pumps air in and out of your lungs. Question, 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 question. Yeah. Does it go through your mouth? It does. So uh, it goes in through your mouth and then into your trachea, which is the stiff pipe that you can feel at the front of your throat there, which goes down and connects to your lungs. Ventilators are called ventilators because they actually do two things. They both oxygenate and ventilate. Oxygenation is bringing oxygen in so that the blood that circulates through your lungs can pick up oxygen, which your body needs to stay alive. Ventilation means the removal of the byproduct of respiration in the body. The byproduct is CO2, carbon dioxide. So all living things take in oxygen, process it, and the waste product is CO2. That is called ventilation, the removal of that CO2. And it's absolutely vital because even though you need oxygen to survive, you also need to remove that CO2 because very quickly, if that CO2 builds up, you will go into a metabolic state that cannot sustain life. What you've told me is waste product is bad and the ventilator helps get rid of that waste product. Otherwise, it will be very bad. In a nutshell, that's it. So was this a common practice before COVID using ventilators on people? Very common, and especially in a place like Harborview Medical Centre, which is a level one trauma centre, people come in and their lungs are 
often greatly impaired by some sort of accident that they've had. They've drowned, and obviously when you drown, you suck a whole bunch of water into your lungs. That stops your lungs from working. You may have been caught in a house fire and uh, inhaled a whole bunch of noxious uh, smoke fumes. There's many reasons at the trauma centre why you would come in and your lungs would not be working properly. So last episode, we spoke to Vanessa Makarowitz, the Infection Prevention Operations Manager. What a title. At Harborview <laughs> Medical Center in Seattle. Uh, she told us what happened and what she was doing when COVID-19 first swept into the United States. And fascinating it was. And Vanessa is um, an extremely fascinating person in terms of the work she does and how she explained what happened. So if you haven't heard that first podcast, please go and check that out because it's incredibly informative and it sort of sets the scene for what we're talking about. In today's episode, we're going to speak to my friend and colleague, Matthew Cazier. He's a critical care registered nurse at Harborview Medical Center, and he's going to explain what happens in a COVID intensive care unit. Here comes sickness. My name is Matthew Cazier, and I have been working as an ICU nurse at Harborview Medical Center. Primarily, my home base is in the trauma surgical ICU, which deals with complex uh, trauma and surgical, procedural, post-procedural, intra-procedural areas. Uh, I'm also work as part of the special pathogens team that preps for biological events and so forth. And I'm also part of the what's called the extracorporeal membrane oxygenation or ECMO specialist team. If you're at a, at a party and someone says, so what do you do? How do you describe what you do? Uh, well, I, at the party, I would say I keep people alive. That's my job after they've had a very unfortunate injury. Now, a lot of the, being a uh, level one hospital, uh, we get the most complex of the complex patient populations, but also we are, we serve as a, as part of our mission, uh, the homeless, the prison populations, the people who are without insurance. Oftentimes, a lot of the people we are taking care of are not through maybe any, any part of their own, but Sometimes they're just not making good decisions in the outside world, and, and that brings them to us, and they drive too fast or, or shoot guns or jump off something or something nutty like that. And sometimes it's just a straight-up accident, and they end up in the, in the ICU. And that's my job is to basically keep them safe. And we work in a teaching hospital as part of the University of Washington hospital system. And so as such, there's a lot of energy and a lot of vitality towards keeping things current as cutting edge is, is appropriate uh, as long as it's justified by science. And uh, so it's, it's really kind of a dynamic place to work. In 2019, you were already dealing with complicated issues, multi-layered issues with just regular people coming into mm -hmm. your hospital, right? So then COVID arrives and what made those patients different from what you were regularly dealing with? Well, I, I think that at the beginning of the coronavirus infections that we saw, and I, I was, as part of the SPAT team, my responsibility 
And wait, Vanessa wait. might have. Oh, sorry, let me stop. Let me stop you there. A what team? <laughs> so. Uh, Vanessa Markowitz helped develop a group called the Special Pathogens Team that was a response to the Ebola cases that we saw coming into the United States a number of years ago and really trying to develop a specialized group of people who would deal with in an uh, austere environment where there's a highly pathogenic organism that may or may not be deadly, uh, but certainly contagious. And then we would we would work in that environment and train for that environment and put on spacesuits every once in a while, so to speak, and uh, learn how to take care of them safely in that environment. Ended up taking care of COVID patients right at the onset because we had had this training. And so the expectation was once COVID came in, we would be part of that first group of people who would help ramp up the regular staff to being safe in that work environment quickly realize is the most important thing is to make sure you can take care of the next patient as much as the patient you're taking care of for currently. Ex- explain to us what donning and doffing is. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a, <laughs> there's lots of placards that, that were developed for this. It's essentially you're just putting on your protective gear or taking off your protective gear. Now, the difference is, as opposed to uh, normally putting on your your hospital scrubs and so forth, is in this context, you have a partner who is a trained observer, and they became probably almost as important, if not uh, more important than the actual caregiver, because they're, they're the canary in the coal mine. They're the ones who are saying, hey, you forgot this step, because it has to be a very uh, step-by-step checklist kind of process to be safe. Is the trained observer your friend or your enemy? <laughs> well, you, you better make sure that they're your friend. That's for sure. Because they truly, I mean, it, it's even talking to friends who worked in, you know, pretty austere environments in, in Africa with Ebola prior to the coronavirus, they use the same kind of structures. You know, they have a trained observer and making sure that the trained observer is, even though they may not be able to have some of the same uh, levels of equipment, they are just as rigorous in their checklists and that kind of thing. So that it better be a buddy of yours. You better be buying them a drink at the end of the day <laughs> or keeping them on your good side because they're, they're highly important. How safe did you feel getting in and out of the um, COVID positive environment? You know, Guy, at the, at the onset, we knew it was a respiratory disease. We knew that we needed a certain level of protection, but there were so many questions, you know, can you get it from a countertop? Can you get it from a person just walking down the hallway? You know, we just didn't, we knew so little about this, this virus. And I think it, it really, that was, I would say when it first broke in Washington state and at at our hospital, that it it was really a, a, uh, a time when there was just so much, questioning about where that line of safety is. And it was interesting because we really had a demarcation outside the door, outside the patient room, and inside the patient room. And I think that was extended outwards as we learned more about this virus, which means to say that we became more aware of trying to be safe outside of the room, not just inside the room. So yeah, I would say once I exited that room, even initially, I felt pretty reasonably safe being cognizant about, you know, this, this whole donning and doffing procedure we spoke of. 
but uh, there was just a lot of questions about what what the heck we were doing. Did it make any difference to you in terms of how you felt, whether you knew the patient was positive or whether they were still pending? That's a great question. I think we really had a sense that, you know, the lab testing, and we had a great lab that stepped up at the virology lab at, at the UW developing a test that ended up being, it was more reliable than the CDC initially. The CDC had some testing that we were sending samples back there and it would take a number of days even or hours to get it turned around. And this lab at the U was stepping up and they developed their own test that was just as good, if not better than CDC's. And they were turning around these samples within, at that time, I think around eight hours. It didn't feel, again, once we were outside the room, Guy, it really felt like we were, we were safe. I mean, it felt like inside the room, you're at risk, and outside the room, you were safe. And inside the room, just to give you an example, we had a, one of the first patients was a guy who came from an outside hospital, got tested, tested negative. I was taking care of him. This is one of the first patients we had. Supposedly tested negative at the outside hospital, but we were treating him as if the result came back negative now. We took him out of COVID precautions, sent him to another ICU area, without the same level of protection. And he then turned positive and infected one of the staff members in that context. So it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, at that point, I think there was, there was, it was, it felt safer being in the COVID unit than anywhere else in the hospital. COVID diary, journal entry, May 7th, 2020, night shift. The inevitable happens. We had a patient from a high-risk nursing home. They'd been isolated, but had initially tested negative for COVID-19. Per our testing protocols, they were cleared from isolation by lab work drawn on admission. There were ongoing concerns given the patient's symptoms. They were tested again and now came back COVID-19 positive. After they'd been cleared, they'd been removed from the isolation precautions. We need to clear patients as soon as possible Lab tests that come back negative on patients that we suspect have COVID allows us to remove them from precautions, thus preserving resources, both equipment, PPE, and human resources and staff. Many providers are taking care of this patient while they were positive, but not in precautions. Nurses had considerably more time in the room than the physicians do caring for these patients in the ICU setting and the acute care setting alike. This is just the nature of care in Western medicine. Nurses are the ones at the bedside meeting those bedside needs for the majority of the time the patient is hospitalized. There was great anxiety as people began to realize that the patient that they had cared for had now tested positive. A physician I knew and had worked with extensively on some committee work in the past came onto the unit noticeably distraught. He was angry that the infection control process and the people that put the process in place had failed him. He was concerned that he'd been exposed he may have taken the exposure home to his family. I understood his concerns completely, even if his behaviour at the time was somewhat out of character. It was also not very reassuring for all the staff that witnessed the outburst. This is not an us versus them situation. We're all in this together. The rules are the same for everyone, as are the risks. At one point I said I was sorry this had happened to him. Fired back, don't even start with that. I know he was angry. It still struck me as unreasonable made me feel like he felt that I did not care about him, that I was just saying something for the sake of diffusing the situation. 
perhaps even trying to defer blame away from myself. Of course, I was not to blame. If anything, I'd done my job well, confirming the patient's positive status as soon as it was known from the lab results. It was difficult for me not to say anything at this time to try and defend myself, to tell him that I thought he was being unreasonable, to chide him. He was not helping by making this public display in front of the already anxious staff, but ultimately, I did not say that. I gave him the number of the infection control COVID physician who was overseeing the protocols and procedures for the hospital. I fired off an email to the same physician that there was going to be some fallout from this patient who had previously tested negative and was now positive. I know the physician who was exposed wasted no time in calling infection control leadership, letting them know how he felt. This was an excellent learning experience because it showed how fragile trust is in these situations. The shock waves of these exposures rippled through the hospital. The rumor mill is always grinding in the hospital. So grist for the mill of this nature is just what's not needed. You know, sending this person to another area after getting a negative test, and you sort of have to rely on these, these certain tests or metrics that were provided and say, well, okay, if they say it's negative, then we're going to trust that they're doing their due diligence and they're, they're being as, as good as they can be doing their job. And I'm going to do my job as good as I can do it. And then, you know, hopefully we'll stay safe in this. But in that context, it was really frustrating because it, it really said that this disease was a kind of a wily character, you know, it was kind of sneaky and we couldn't really determine once somebody came into the hospital, you really had to had to treat them as if they were positive. And and that's that's the other thing I would say you were saying about the donning and doffing and the safety thing. It really felt safer on the COVID unit. In the COVID unit, you knew in that room was the COVID. Outside the room, you don't you know you didn't really know. So you could say, well, I feel safe because I got my gear on, and I'm being diligent and I'm being really careful and and making sure I'm gelling my hands and, and don't touch in my face or touching anywhere else, you know, just really stay into the protocol. Whereas outside the room, you're thinking, oh, well, I'll go have a sip of coffee and I'm sitting talking to my friend and, you know, it's, it's kind of, kind of a big question mark there. Yeah. How does it feel doing your job in a spacesuit? <laughs> well, it, it, then this is something that we um, quickly realized First of all, that we didn't have enough supplies to use the full, the hoods and the, and the air filters and things like that, that we used for the Ebola patients. We really had to skinny that down to what then now is commonly known as, you know, using an N95 mask and eye protection and the gown and glove, which is now the standard article. It was actually liberating to go to the N95s because you have a lot more mobility, a lot more flexibility with them. A whole lot of this treatment and part of your job was about getting oxygen into the blood of patients, right? So why was that so hard? Yeah, I mean, th th this is um, something we've encountered with this, with COVID that's really knocked us on our heels a little bit because we'd have people coming into into the ED and, and I 
after initially working to help ramp up the staff in the COVID ICU, I then went to the ER and you'd see people down there talking on their cell phone, um, texting somebody. And we use a little thing like, like a clothespin on people's finger. That's a pulse oximetry device. It's basically oxygen device where it's a percentage of oxygen in your blood. And, and all of us on this call, we're, we're probably running 98, 99%, maybe 97 when we're winded. These people would be running about 55% and still talking on their phone. So it was weird to see these people normally in the hospital. You go above, you go below rather uh, 80% and you're thinking, oh, we're going to put a breathing tube in people. And that's what we did initially. It was, it was just trying to get oxygen into their lungs. And that's primarily why a lot of these people ended up in the ICU. Because when you, when you get, a, get a breathing tube or the, the ventilator, you, you have to go to the ICU for monitoring on that. Why does lying on your belly change the game? Well, um, believe it or not, uh, the simplest way to describe it is is we are all descendants of quadrupeds, meaning meaning four legged creatures, and and so our bodies, believe it or not, are set up to be in that kind of four legged position. Our lungs, our heart, so our heart's kind of in front of our lungs. Our lungs kind of are in the back. And so if you think about it, if you're lying on your back and your lungs are filling up with water, all that water is going to be floating towards the the larger part of your lungs. So if you flip people over on their bellies, you're essentially, even though you still have that potential for inflammation or water in your lungs that's produced by your body from the disease, you're opening up more of your lung to be available to exchange CO2 and oxygen and breathe. So we're we're basically trying to make people more like our quadruped descendants, you know, think like our four-legged dogs at home, you know. Turning people on their belly is known as proning. We previously knew about doing this for other people that had very serious lung injuries, but this was always considered a last-ditch effort, right? Mm-hmm. So what do you remember what started to move this to more of a just a standard thing as opposed to a large stitch? <laughs> Proning is something, as you said, you're exactly right. We, you know, we used to use that for years and years, but it was, um, the benefit of that was not, you know, there's a lot of in the science journals and things like that were studies that were done that having people lie on their belly in that prone position. But I think a lot of the results from that said that short-term gain, but not long-term gain. In other words, people still died at the same rate, but they oxygenated or they, they got oxygen in their lungs uh, a little bit better before they died. So in this case, we actually had something w- that we could provide that people could do themselves. We were actually helping people do this before the ventilators and all this kind of stuff, before we went down that road, just said, hey, lie in your belly. Please lie in your belly. We'll prop you up with pillows and this kind of thing, uh, even starting in the emergency department, because that'll, that'll help them. And the longer you can allow their body to deal with this new virus, the more chance they had to survive it and recover from it. In your normal job as a trauma ICU nurse, a typical patient for you would be a motorcycle victim that's a polytrauma, has many different areas of their body have been damaged by a motorcycle crash. When you set the alarm on the oxygen level in their blood, what number do you put in? Well, that's that's one of the first safety checks you do as a ICU nurse is you check your alarms. 
And typically what you'll do is you'll tighten up at the beginning of the day and loosen up through the course of the day. And so, for example, you go in in the morning or in the evening if you're starting for a night shift and you're looking at your oxygen alarm and it may be default alarm at 90%, but I might set mine at 92, 93, because I want to know earlier on if this person's getting sick. But as you said, you got to just kind of throw that out the window sometimes because these people are just off the charts or or below the charts, really. <laughs> They're diving in a submarine or something, you know, because they were, they were way under that bar. And so this was way out of the norm for us. Did that make you feel uncomfortable? Um, I think you change you change your perspective in the sense that you change what's normal. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a little, little hair raising because you used to, you know, you're taught in school that this is what you're, you're supposed to be able to see as a normal and, and moreover, uh, normal for life. In other words, below this level, people start dying and, and these people were seem to be just fine below it. And it just, it was really a testament to how resilient the human body is, you know, that you have a lot of, a lot of different mechanisms that allow you to compensate and and deal with adversity this way and it it was it was it was really interesting but then a lot of these patients did die didn't they yeah it um there was there was a lot of mortality and it 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 was we we would scratch our heads because it it you know you kind of like is there a i remember early on there was a sense that it was we were saying is it is it people with type B blood? You know, we do blood typing when people come in the hospital and there's type A, type B, et cetera. And a lot of the people who were dying at that point were type B for some reason. <laughs> I don't know, it's just a, it just happened to be. It was like, is it something to do with that? Is it something, you know, totally grasping at straws. We didn't know what the heck we were doing. So as far as trying to figure out who's the people who are most at risk, typically we would the people we would see earlier on were people who were 50, 60, 70-year-old folks. Unfortunately, the people who were 80, 90-year-old, oftentimes they wouldn't even make it to the hospital. Although, we, uh, to, to her credit, we, I remember this one gal who was on the, the uh, acute care floor, which is the level below the ICU, that they had set up also as a, as a COVID unit on the fourth floor. And she was one of the first patients, and she, she survived it, and she was 93 years old or something. So she may have been an outlier, but uh, so it, it, it was really hard to figure out who's going to survive and who's going who's gonna to succumb to the disease. So it was kind of crazy at that point. So as a civilian, the thing I'm feeling after hearing these stories from Matthew Cazier is that you guys in the medical profession you do this every day this is what you do you get up and you go and do this stuff every day and I think the bottom line here after talking with Matthew and hearing his hearing his stories as a critical care nurse in the intensive care unit is that no one should really want to end up in an ICU with COVID. And if you can, avoid it. But thankfully, there are great medical and healthcare pros doing an amazing job if you do end up in one. So thank you, guys. And thank you. Thank you, Matthew. And it is true. You definitely do not want to end up on an ICU with COVID-19. <laughs> 
Worst case scenario. I think <laughs> what we really um, heard from Matthew amongst you know a, a bunch of really great, insightful um, stories of what actually happens there on the ICUs is that Matthew really brought home the chilling fact that we still have so much to learn about COVID that we still don't understand it fully. And, you know, we need to learn fast because, as we all know, the pandemic is refusing to disappear in the world's rear vision mirror. So you can join us uh, next time for episode three of Emergency Room, The COVID Diaries. The fun never stops here. Uh, episode three, we're going to speak with Dr. Chloe Bryson Kahn, and she is an infectious disease expert, and expert is in all capital letters. I'm not reading this off anything, but if I was reading it, it would be all capital letters. And that conversation with uh, Dr. Bryson Khan is going to be fascinating. Capital, capital fascinating. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Chloe is certainly going to bring the blood, sweat and tears of the pandemic to this podcast. Also, while we're talking about our guests, please check out episode one of the podcast, Emergency Room, The COVID Diaries on Ruinous Media. Our first guest was Vanessa McCarowitz, COVID Operations for Harborview Hospital here in Seattle, Washington. She paints the fascinating and terrifying picture of how this all began, and it is really interesting. People that have listened to that episode are amazed by her um, recount of how it all went down. Emergency Room is written and presented by Matthew Hall and Guy Madison. Produced by Guy Madison, Matthew Hall and Ruinous Media. Music by... Mud Honey, Palm Frauds, Beauty Hunters. And Plant. Or Plant. Plant, 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 Plant. If you'd like to contact us... Or you need to contact us, just go to ruinousmedia.com. Dot com. Shall we spell that out? R-U-I-N-O-U-S. Ruinous. Media. M-E-D-I-A. <laughs> dot. That's a, that's a full stop. Com. C-O-M. Thanks for listening. Bye.